So 2 Corinthians chapter number 7. I told you I was going to preach through verse 2 to 16. Uh, last week you laughed, and so your laughter had just cause. And uh, we're not going to get through 16, all right? <laughs> you knew. You, you know me better than I know myself. But we will read verse 1 down to verse number 10. This is a uh, tremendous uh, section, and I, I pray this will be an encouragement tonight. Uh, verse 1, it says, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. He says, Receive us. We have wronged no man. We have corrupted no man. We have defrauded no man. I speak not this to condemn you, for I have said before that ye are in our hearts to die and live with you. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my glorying of you. I am filled with comfort. I am exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. For when we were come into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. Nevertheless, God that comforteth those that are cast down comforteth, uh, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you. When he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoice the more. For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. If you'd read verse 10 with me. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Father, again, we are so humbled by how great the salvation is that you have brought us through our King Jesus. Father, thank you for those who've come out to bring their children to Awanas to learn the Word of God. Bless them. Bless those hundred plus kids. Bless the teen ministry tonight going on, the other recovery ministries, as well as this adult service. We pray that your Holy Spirit would move. We pray that you would allow your word to just be implanted in our hearts. Let our minds be focused on you. Some folks tonight have had long weeks. Some perhaps didn't even get to eat much for dinner. They just came here. And Lord, may we feast upon your word. May it be our substance. May it be our strength and it be our wisdom. We turn to you now. We give you our attention because your word is worthy of it. We ask that you would produce the fruit that would most glorify you in our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And God's people said, man, you may be seated this evening. If I were to ask you, what's the most challenging thing in your life that you have to deal with, what would you say? A Michigan fan, right? Is that what you said? <laughs> Right. She, she said sin, but I thought she said a Michigan fan. I couldn't, you know, I'm sorry. I, I'm, I shouldn't do that. I'm sorry. Um, but we, it is sin. It is sin. And you know, we all have to deal with sin because we live with sinners and they live with us, right? Because we're all sinners. Uh, one one uh, girl in a, in a class was asked, a young girl was asking a class, she said, are you a sinner? And she said, um, yes. They said, what, what changed after you got saved? She said, I went from being a sinner chasing sin to now a sinner running from sin. I thought that was profound for a young child to understand. Last week, we discussed how God desires to bless our life. When you look at Genesis 1 and 2, man was created in paradise. The one thing that caused the paradise of God to be lost was sin, rebellion, is disobedience to God and sin. And Satan's lie to Adam and Eve was this, I can give you more if you disobey God. My plans are better for you if you were just to do what I tell you to do when it is opposed to what God says to do. And the reason for the miseries of our life is because of sin. Matthew Henry was right when he said this, misery or sin is the cause of our misery. Sin is the cause of our misery. It's what creates misery. Sin brings sorrow, heartache, pain, suffering, and death in the world. 
Now, I'm not saying if your back goes out that it is a direct result of your sin, okay? I had somebody ask that the other day. They said, you know, you said that, uh, no, what I'm saying is sin in general has brought all the miseries we face in the world. Now, there are sometimes we have physical consequences because of something we did, but we're just in a fallen world because of sin. We are susceptible to its infections and its different uh, curses. Romans 5.12 says this, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now, Satan wants people to blame God for the hardships of life. I think we've probably all fell subject to that deceptive lie before and, and asked God why, not in, a, not in a sincere way, but in an accusative way. But God is the only one who has not sinned, right? And if sin is the cause of our misery, he's not the cause of it because he never sinned. And he, in fact, is the only one that can cure us of our sin. In John 10, 10, Jesus said, the thief, talking of Satan, comes not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Jesus said, but I've come to give you life and life more abundantly. Now, just as Eve believed the lie in the garden to Satan, so Satan continues to perpetrate that lie that we are better off to disobey God and that will satisfy, but that is not the truth. Now, in the seventh chapter, Paul confronts two places sin must be dealt with when it and it needs to be dealt with in a biblical way. And one of those is inwardly, and the other is outwardly. Last week, we saw the internal sin that we need to deal with. And chapter 6 concludes by saying, don't be unequally yoked to an unbeliever. Don't get connected to somebody who's lost, because it will bring you into those things. And he concludes it in chapter 7, verse 1, by saying this, Having therefore these promises, the promises of God, that he would dwell with us, be our father, and us his children, as chapter 6 concludes. In chapter 7 he says, Dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And so we are to deal with the sin in our life. Uh, Christians who live in sin will love without the comfort, will live without the comfort and joy of God. They will make their life miserable in sin. When you think about when your life was just a mess, when things were just inwardly uh, tragic, you couldn't pull things together, your life was just at, at a breaking point, uh, it's when sin begins to often invade our lives, and, and God allows that pain to bring us to himself. And we saw that in Psalms 32 last week, how uh, David spoke about the blessed man. He said, blessed is the man whose sins is forgiven and whose iniquities are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not impute sin. And he said, when I kept silence, David had sinned. He didn't confess it to God. He held on to it. He said, he said your hand was heavy upon me day and night. He said, my moisture has turned into the drought of summer, like I'm dying on the inside. And, and so uh, sin weighs us down. It, it makes us miserable. And to get out of sin, there is conflict. It is a battle, a war that rages against the flesh. We fight ourself. Our greatest enemy is not the devil, it's ourself. We see ourselves in the mirror every day. We've got to deal with that person that's looking back at us. The Bible tells us in Galatians 5, 16, and 17 that the flesh wars against the spirit. The inward man fights against the outward man, vice versa, and that battle rages every day. So you must put off those sins and put on the new man. Now, tonight I want to look at another place that can cause us to lose joy, peace, and comfort in life, and that is when others fall into sin. Often people think their sin only affects them, but that is a lie. Sin is like a disease that spreads from the carrier, from the host, to those around them. The only cure to sin is repentance, biblical repentance. And when another believer goes into sin, we have a responsibility before God to lovingly confront them and to do it in a way that would honor the Lord and help them through their sin. And tonight I want to look at how Paul deals with the church at Corinth and how that it is not an easy thing to do, but it will produce great comfort and joy to Paul and to others who will deal with sin in a right way. Now, chapter 7 especially verse 2 through 16, is the response of a grieving pastor, in this case the Apostle Paul, who had to confront a sinning church, and it just broke his heart to do so. 
Paul spoke through the New Testament of weeping for churches that he ministered to. Sometimes he wept because he said there's enemies of the gospel that are creeping into the church, trying to pull the church into false doctrine, and he wept over that. Uh, sometimes he would weep over the disruption of sin inside of churches he ministered to. Uh, Paul never had a perfect church that he ministered to. That's why when people say, you know, there's hypocrites in church, uh, I don't think that... Um, there's hypocrites everywhere in life, but people who go to church, I would say the churches I've been a part of, I don't see a bunch of people who think they're perfect coming to church thinking they never sin. I see a bunch of people who realize how sick and sinful they are who need the Savior, and so they come as those who would come to a hospital. That, to, to say the church is full of hypocrites is like to say a hospital is full of sick people. They didn't go to the hospital saying they're healthy. Y'all with me? The people who think they're so healthy are the ones who don't come to the hospital. Right? Now, I know there are some, some us four and no more churches. You know, a visitor comes in, they're like, what do they think they're doing here? You know? <laughs> they're not allowed sitting in our sanctuary that has nobody else in it but us four, you know? And, uh, you know, there are some groups like that, and, and, and you know, it's a tragedy, but uh, I don't see our churches being like that. And so Paul was grieved. Uh, he was grieved um, with this church. And, and I just want to kind of walk you through this a little bit. You can hold your place there in chapter 7. Flip back when, with me to chapter number 2 of 2 Corinthians 2. Um, in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul is on his third and final missionary journey. He left Ephesus. He's now traveled north to a city called Troas. And he comes to Troas for three reasons. He comes there to preach the gospel. He had been in Ephesus. It's a seaport city. And um, there was a riot that broke out according to Acts 19. So he had to get out uh, for, for safety. There was some religious persecution. And then there was a third reason he traveled north to Troas. He wanted to find his young pastor friend Titus his son in the faith. Titus had been sent by Paul to Corinth to see how things were going there. Paul knew Titus would have to go through Troas as he goes there to meet Titus. Uh, and Titus was really a son in the faith to Paul. He was a young preacher. Paul mentions him nine times in this epistle. And Paul had sent Titus to see how the church at Corinth was doing. And this was this was several weeks of journey, a couple months at least, to travel from Ephesus to go to Troas. You would have went around the Mediterranean and come down to the city of Corinth. And um, Paul had sent what the Bible refers to as a severe letter. He, he, he had sent them a letter of strong rebuke. There were some false teachers at Corinth. The last time Paul was at the, at the Corinthian church, somebody had really hammered Paul, and nobody at the church stood up for Paul. They just let him get verbally hammered. And Paul dealt with this in a very gracious way. You know, there were some false accusations coming against Paul, a bunch of lies being said about him. And, and so he didn't get a chance to resolve everything that needed to get resolved. He had started that church. I mean, I mean, just think about it. What happens when you're the apostle Paul and your church just finds all these problems with you? And the guy wrote half the New Testament. It's like, man, you know, that's just amazing to me when you look back on that. And, and, and so Paul had sent them a very strong letter. That's why when you get to verse 8 of, of chapter 7, he says, I, I made you sorry with the letter. And Paul is anxiously awaiting because they didn't have text messaging back there. I know young people, this is hard. Jalen, I know this is tough. It's hard to understand, all right? I love little Jalen. And uh, you see some of these kids, I mean, it's like you can see the smoke coming off. You know, I'm like, how do they do that? You know, video games, I couldn't even do it that fast when I was a kid. But they, they didn't have any way to find out something quick. It was a slow process. And Paul's heart was so grieved to find out how did the church receive the letter I sent them? How are they going to respond to that? And, um, and while he's waiting, God had opened a great door of ministry in the city of Troas. Look at verse 12 of chapter number 2. He says, furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of who? Of the Lord. So this, this is a door the Lord opens 
This is a statement that Paul uses in different letters that he writes. It was a reference to God opening up an opportunity for much evangelism, for souls to be saved, to, to see church plants happening. I mean, this is, this is wonderful. God is blessing. God's moving. But in the middle of all that God was doing evangelistically at Troas, look what Paul's heart, where his heart was in verse 13. He said, I had no rest in my spirit. You ever have a lot of good things going on, but your soul is just, something is weighing you down and you just cannot get past it. This is Paul. He said, I had no rest in my spirit because I found not Titus, my brother. Look what he says here. But taking my leave of them, I went from thence into Macedonia. That's one of the most shocking things I've ever read in the New Testament about the Apostle Paul. I mean, the Holy Spirit's like revivals happening at Troas. And Paul is so burdened by a severe letter that he wrote and to find out how his children in the faith, the church at Corinth is doing, he's so discouraged that Titus hasn't made it back. Like, what's the holdup? What's the problem? Why isn't Titus here? He should have been back through Troas by now. His heart was heavier to find out about how the church at Corinth was doing than souls being saved. He was more concerned with the church at Corinth than the salvation of the souls going on at Troas. So much so, he left Troas. He would rather minister at Corinth than see these people coming to Christ. He left. There's, Paul was never closer to quitting the ministry than what we read here. He was, he was never closer to throwing in the towel saying, I can't do this anymore. I can handle the physical persecution. I can handle the assaults of the unbelievers. I just can't handle the assault of the church. It, it, is, it is burying the great apostle Paul. It's burying him. So not finding Titus at Troas, he couldn't stay there anymore. He is torn up. He's like a parent who aches for an erring child. You ever have? That happened to you? Your, your heart aches. You get into a dark place. He begins to write about these challenges in 2 Corinthians 7, where our text is. In 2 Corinthians 7, you can flip back over there. Look at verse number 5. He says, For when we were coming to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side without we're fightings within we're fears nevertheless God that comforts those that are cast down comforted us by the coming of Titus what's interesting is this uh, if if you mark up your Bible which you should verse 13 because Bibles were made to be studied verse 13 through chapter 7 verse 4 is a parenthesis this is a long divine rabbit trail if you would Paul goes on a rabbit trail from 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14, through chapter 7, verse 4, and he begins to talk about the ministry. He picks back up what he was talking about, what we just read in chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. He picks that conversation back up here in chapter 7, verse 5. This verse 5 literally could be connected back there, but it's like this big five-chapter injection of like stuff. So not only am I guilty of this, all right? Thank you, Paul. That's a long rabbit trail, brother. I mean, there is a lot in there, all right? His rabbit trails are a lot more sound and probably theologically fantastic, obviously, and all of that. But, but you need to understand this. Paul had been beaten down by the church at Corinth. His heart had been broken by them. There was an anti-Paul faction that had grown up. They began to say things about Paul, accusing him of all kinds of things. And notice, notice what Paul says in this verse, a man who is in the middle of God's will. In the middle of the will of God, he says in verse 5, our flesh had no rest. He's in the middle of the will of God and he cannot rest. He, he says, you ever been there where you just can't get rejuvenated? You're just exhausted. You cannot find relief. He says in verse 5, we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings. I mean, he was facing persecution. He was facing affliction. Within were fears. I mean, he is surrounded by troubles on the outside and on the inside. He, he, the unbelievers are wanting to tear him apart on the outside, and the believers at the church are tearing him apart on the inside. 
You know, people do not understand the grief that their sin causes other people. Children don't understand what they can do to their parents. I mean, did you understand what, did anybody understand what you were doing to your parents when you were a teenager? Raise your hand if you say, I didn't fully understand it. I didn't get it. I didn't get it. I grieve over that. I grieve over that. I, I just wish I would have been a lot better son. You know, I just, uh, you can't go back. Praise God that he brought me to himself. But uh, you just, you just don't, you don't get it. And you can tell a teenager, they just, they, they just don't understand. I think sometimes they can get some of it, but it's, you, until you're there, you just, you know, people, Kids don't know what they do to their parents. I don't think people always understand what they do to their pastors and leaders. I don't know that they understand like how they can, you know, when they get into sin, uh, you know, it, it's, it's somebody who's close to you and they, you know, just it, it, people get wounded, hurts. Um, I'm, I'm glad to preach this after ministering for 20 years because I, I, I can understand Paul so much better. I wouldn't have understood this book year one. Uh, but but having been in the ministry for 20 years, seeing a couple church plans from different cities, uh, I, I, I understand it now. I, and I, I would say this, I, I feel like the most blessed pastor in the world. I, Lighthouse is just like a, just the joy of heaven for me. I mean, you are my family. I just, I feel like I would rather die than go anywhere else. But, you know, if the Lord wanted me to go to Africa and jungle to Congo, I'd do it, you know. But, uh, you know, you better support me if I go, too. You, know, you better support me. Lighthouse, you, you didn't get your missions money over here this month, you know? Yeah. Better read my newsletters. But, you know, statistics show, and in, in, in COVID had a real hit on ministries. Statistics show in 2021, 29% of pastors said they're seriously considering quitting. By 2022, it jumped to 42%. Nearly half of the pastors, 42% of pastors in churches across this country said they're really considering getting out. Um, it's just, just the pressures. Thank you for loving the word. Um, there's no greater joy that I have than people who just thank you for preaching the word. Just, I see the love of Christ on your face, the love for his word on your face. Um, when you choose to live in sin and be rebellious, it, it causes great grief to other people. You know, on the other hand, it, it I didn't realize how much joy I could bring to my parents when I did right, <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it kind of lives on the extremes, uh, and, and, and teens' lives are like roller coasters. You know, I always tell people, don't ride it with them. They're up, they'll come back down. They're down, they'll come back up. Just, I don't like getting motion sick anymore, so I'll stay right here. But um, don't, don't ride that too hard with them. But just, Christian, you can encourage your friends, your teachers, your pastors, your ministers. When you do what's right, it's such an overwhelming encouragement. It's, it's motivating. But like Paul, have you ever been in that place where you just, you just weigh down? You're like, man, I just, you know, I have so many, so many challenges going on. I just can't stay focused. Just understand this. The, the man who's writing 13 books of the New Testament was in such a pressured place, and he's exactly where God called him to be. So going back, uh, that's kind of all introduction. I, I want to talk about how, how to confront people when they get into sin. How do you do this? Uh, I just want to give you four things tonight. Um, how do you confront somebody when they get into sin? Because here's the thing. We all sin, and we all need to help each other through that, right? Uh, listen, if, if, if I got into sin and, 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 uh, and, and somebody said, man, I saw Josh lose his temper over here. I saw Josh say something over here he shouldn't have said or behave in a certain way. Uh, I, would, I would want somebody to come and point that out because I don't want to stay in that. Some, we, anybody else have blind spots sometimes? You just don't see it in yourself? And, and what do we do when somebody's like, hey, you know, we're like, I didn't do that. You know, you're talking about your mirror's broke, son. Your eyes, you need some glasses. And... Uh, and so let me give you, um, give you some things tonight that can help us. Because let me say this, we need each other, right? We need each other. We, we help, in the, God gave us one another to help sanctify one another. Like we need to do that for each other, uh, to hold each other up, to love each other. We need to be encouraged. We need people to say, hey, man, it's good to see you here. Like we are thankful for you being here. It's good to see your growth. 
And so, um, first of all, you must confront sin in your own life before you and I can confront it in others. And we see that in verse 1 through 4. That you must be right with God before you can help anybody else be right with God. You know, verse 1, Paul got clean inwardly before he could help others get clean. And so he says in verse 1, having therefore these promises, let us cleanse ourselves. There's got to be a, a cleansing of self before you can get into helping other people. So you got to be right. And look what he says in verse 2, receive us. We've wronged no man, we've corrupted no man, we've defrauded no man. So, so Paul's saying, listen, we haven't done any injustice to anybody. We haven't corrupted anybody to cause them to sin, and we haven't been deceitful or defraud anyone. And so he's saying, we, we're clean inwardly. There's nobody that, that, that we're, we're wrong with. We, we come to you wanting to help you uh, because, because we, we, are, we, are, uh, we love you, and, 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 and our hearts are clean before you to do this. Now, now notice before you can help others get right, you have to get right, and, and, and Jesus deals with this in Matthew 7. You know, the most famous verse in America used to be John 3, 16. That got traded out for Matthew 7, 1, right? What's Matthew 7, 1 say? Judge, lest ye be judged. The whole world, like, judge not. Judge not. They, they don't even have a clue what that means, right? Uh, Jesus is speaking in Matthew 7. Let me, let me read a few of those verses for you because it ties perfectly into this. Matthew 7, verse 3, he says, and, uh, and why beholdest thou the moat? A moat there just like was a sp small speck, like a sawdust, a piece of sawdust. Uh, a speck in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam. It, it would literally be like the rafter in a house. This is comical, isn't it? So, so why are you pointing out a piece of sawdust in your brother's eye when you have a rafter hanging out of your own eyeball? Verse 4, he goes on, Or how will thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the moat or the speck out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, but then make sure you don't address their speck because you don't want to judge them. Is that what he says? No, he says, once you get right, you see it? When you get right, then you can help. Because I don't want a piece of sawdust. So a piece of sawdust will debilitate you. Right? I mean, it's like... Full-grown man's on the ground in a ball crying. It's like, what's wrong? He's like, I got a piece of sawdust in my eye. Uh, yes. I was going to tell a joke, but I'll keep going on because I'll rabbit trail this thing. So, so here is Jesus rebuking. Uh, and, and you need to know this. He's rebuking people who were fault finders. They were professional fault finders in that culture because they, they, they were in a uh, legalistic culture, a culture that was uh, like, I'm good enough to go to heaven. Among the Jewish scribes and Pharisees, they were, they were all self-righteous instead of Christ-righteous. So if you grow up in a self-righteous system, you become speck finders. I mean, you, you just, you love to point out faults in others. You, you point one finger out and three are pointing back. And Jesus is teaching before you can judge anyone else, you must first find uh, the sin and deal with the sin in your own life. Isn't that what happened when they found the woman caught in adultery? Jesus says, he that is without sin, let him cast the first stone, right? You got to deal with yourself. By the way, that was a setup because where was the guy? You don't commit adultery by yourself. That was a setup, wasn't it? So, so Jesus wants us to help other people with specs, but we got to deal with our first, ours, ours first. Now, he doesn't say ignore their speck. He says to examine your life first, then you can help them. And so the right kind of judgment judges a person's actions also and not their motives. Uh, it's important to know this. You can, you can judge actions. You can look at someone and say, that's right or that's wrong. Right? By the way, when somebody says, judge not, then I'm like, then you can never discipline your kids. Because the moment you're like, that's, don't be talking back. Well, you're judging me, mom. <clears throat> right? You could never fire an, an employee for taking money out of the cash. Well, you're, judge, you're judging them. Everything in life's judging. But it's the, Jesus said this, judge righteous judgment is what he said. And so the right kind of judgment is judging people's actions, not their motives. You ever have somebody say this, well, I know they were sorry. I, I know they said they won't do it again, but I really know their heart. Like, you don't know their heart. You're not God. Right? 
plus love believes all things and hopes all things. The problem is you're unloving and you have sin in your heart. You have a beam hanging out, friend. So Matthew 7, 16, after Jesus says, judge right, talking about right judgment, he says, you will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Matthew 7, 20 says, wherefore by their fruits you shall know them. Uh, you, can, you can judge people's actions. You, you can know, hey, that person uh, did wrong there. They, they, their actions were wrong there, but you, you, don't, you can't see inside their heart. You don't know their heart's motives. So uh, when, when you and I judge people, we must first start with ourselves, get ourselves right. We must, then we can go to them, and it's got to be their actions that we focus on, not their motives. Secondly, com- com- uh, confronting sin must be motivated by love for others, not hate. And uh, verse 7, Paul says, actually verse number 2, he says this, receive us. He says, receive us. It's a a word, koreo in the Greek. It's like, make room for us. Uh, Open your heart up to us is the idea. This goes back into chapter 6, verse 11, when he says, O ye Corinthians, our mouth is open to you. Our heart is enlarged. He says, uh, Second uh, Corinthians 6 verse 13, now for a recompense in the same, I speak as unto my children, be also enlarged. What he's saying is, uh, open up your hearts to us. We've opened our hearts up to you. Now open your hearts up in love to us. That's why in verse 3, he says, uh, ye are in our hearts to die and live with you in chapter 7. Um, and then in verse 4 of chapter 7, he says, great is my boldness of speech towards you. Because he had an open heart to them, he had an open mouth to them. You ever love someone enough to where you could just speak into their life and, and, and you feel like the walls are down, you just love them enough, it's like, I'm just going to speak to you what I know is truth because I love you too much to not tell you. And, and, and you're sincere, and when they know you love them, you can just pour that out, and it's not offensive, it's, it's, it's there. And he says, listen, my mouth is open because my heart's open. I'm telling you what you need to know. On the other hand, people who don't open up their mouth are holding back their heart. Because a closed heart causes a closed mouth, and it, and it, and it will hold on to bitterness and anger, and, and, and Paul wouldn't do that. And so self-love stays silent because it's more concerned with personal comfort than the growth of others. That's why people don't share the gospel. We don't share the gospel because we are more concerned about our comfort, so we close our hearts and our mouth to lost people. Same thing happens in relationships with believers to other believers and, and not dealing with sin. You know, when you love someone, you'll be motivated to help them. And he says in verse 4, notice what he goes on to say, great is my boldness of speech towards you, great is my glorying of you. That's an incredible thing. I mean, he's going around, instead of bad-mouthing the Corinthians, he's going around speaking well of them. He's, he's boasting positively uh, wonderful things about them. In chapter 8 and 9, we'll see that in later weeks, but uh, they're bringing up, taking up love offerings for the church at, Corinth, or at Jerusalem because they're suffering and they're poor. And, and the church at Corinth said, hey, we got a big old love offering. We're going to send to that. And he's like, man, I've been telling everybody about how much love you have for the saints there. And, and, and he's boasting of them. Though they haven't sent it, he believes that they will. And he's speaking well of them. He hoped the best for them. You know, that's what love does. Love hopes all things. It believes all things. It believes the, It gives people the benefit of the doubt. So how do you speak of people who you have a disagreement with? When you, when, when you, when you have a disagreement with somebody, uh, do you go around and say, you know, but there are really, you know, you speak, you speak as positive as you can. That's what love does. Sunday we saw when John the Baptist had doubts about Jesus. Do you remember what <laughs> Jesus, um, Jesus is ministering and, and John the Baptist is in prison. He sends a couple of his disciples said, Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? And Jesus says, go back and tell John, like, I'm healing all the blind people, raising the dead, doing all these miracles. And they're like, yep. <laughs> they go back. And it says when they left, the question is, how did Jesus talk to the people about John the Baptist? And what he did, he began to speak better about John the Baptist than anyone has ever spoken about John the Baptist. Jesus said, among those that are born of women, there has never been a greater than John the Baptist. Literally, when John the Baptist was at the lowest point on the faith pole, the grace of God rose the highest in his life. Jesus spoke best about John when John was speaking in the most weak faith terms of his life. That's that's how grace and love works. And so understand this tonight. 
Um, do you speak? I would ask this question. Do you want Jesus to speak of you when you sin the way you speak of those who wrong you? When you wrong Christ, do you want others to talk about you like you talk about others? And, and that, that's really what Matthew 5, 44, Jesus says, love your enemies. Eulogia them that curse you. It's where we get the English word eulogy from. It's, eulogy is not when you stand up and like badmouth the person who passed, right? You, you stand up and it's to speak well of them. You speak good of them. You, you do them good. You don't hate them. So it says, bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. So Jesus says to even love your enemies. And so um, verse 7, or verse 4, chapter 7 goes on. He says, I am filled with comfort. I am exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. And the reason that he became joyful was because Titus brought Paul good news from the church at Corinth. And he was filled with comfort and joy. The, the words comfort and joy are each used six times in chapter 7. God is a God who wants to bring us great comfort and great joy. And that comes when you deal with sin inwardly and you deal with problems of sin outwardly. When you reconcile and those things can happen, then it is such a joyful occasion. This also lets you know his motive is right because there was a right response uh, their right response caused him joy. People who confront others out of a hateful spirit have no joy. You ever notice that? We've probably all done this. You ever cr- confront some situation in life? It could be a family member, a child, a, some friend or whatever, but you're, you're confronting them. It's not out of love. It's not out of love. It's out of just frustration and anger. And even if they're like, man, I'm so sorry what I did was wrong, you still aren't happy. You know, right? Are we happy? No, we're still angry. That lets us know it's not a sin, just what they did. Now I've partaken in their sin in my heart. I need to get right. His response of joy to their repentance shows that his heart was right toward them. Because only people with the right motive of love can respond with joy. He, not only was he joyful, but he said, I am exceeding joyful. It's Hooper, uh, Hooper, Perezuo, uh, which is a compound word, it's a long word, but it, it's like over superabounding joy. It's like this is this is joy on roids. This is like uh, you have just you have just intensified my joy to a level. It's only used one other place in the Bible. This word, it, it is used when it says where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Like, grace just crushed my sin because it just got injected with uh, this. And I don't try to say the word again. It's a long word. So, this is the joy. It's like, I am not just joyful. I am overabundant, exceeding joyful. And, and that's, that's what happens when, when sin is dealt with and it's done in the right way. Now, Paul loved the saints at Corinth. His heart is seen over and over for people through the New Testament. You know, even the Lord Jesus Christ in Romans 3.19, when he came to the churches, he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten or discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. You know, it's love that should compel people to do that. Just as love should compel us to share the gospel. And isn't the gospel, in a sense, rebuking lost people? Isn't, Isn't the gospel, in a sense, going to people that are unreconciled to God, seeking to see them reconciled to God? And what do we have to do? We have to come to them and say, you're, you're out of line with the Lord. And bring them to the word, which will show them they are a sinner in need of the Savior. They will have to come to repentance. They will have to come to Christ. That's not an easy thing for them to see, but that's what love would do. It would motivate you to confront them. You know, Proverbs 27, 6 says this, faithful are the wounds of a what? Friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. You ever had somebody like, oh, you know, they speak well of you, and then you leave, and they cut you in the back? You know, it's a blessing when, when, when people can be honest. Your, your mouth will be open when your heart is. Now, who, let me say this, too. Sometimes... If you're offended by somebody, sometimes it's not their fault. Many times it's our fault, right? If, if somebody didn't shake your hand 
Give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, there's people that will come here every week who have parents who've found out they had cancer, children going through struggles with addiction, financial strains, marriages that could be in a difficult situation, neighbors that are stressing them out. There's all kinds of things. And I know this, I can be at home and my wife can be talking to me and I will lose track. (laughs) Not because I wanted to. But for some reason, somewhere along the line, my one box got filled up with something else. And then the dreaded thing happens. She asks a question. (laughs) Women, please don't use a follow-up question when he's using the deer in the headlights. Look, all right, don't have mercy on us. We have one box to work with. Just leave us with our little box. You know, touch our legs, say, honey. Oh, yes. And then just repeat it once again. Do I need to repeat this again, you know? Or slap us or whatever to get our attention again. But we, 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 need, to, we need to realize sometimes we get offended when um, we need to be gracious. If you find yourself getting worked up a lot, the problem's not outside of you. The problem's probably inside of you. If your feathers are always ruffled, if you're always upset with somebody, if somebody's always, you're, you're mad and you're getting riled up, then, then um, you just need to understand that is a, uh, that is, just ask, how many times did Jesus get riled up in Scripture? Uh, he got riled up when God was offended. We get riled up when we're offended. Uh, we need, you, you know, there were people in the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6, they were suing one another. Paul says, why are you going to court and that before the unbeliever? He said, just take the wrong. Just take it. Somebody wronged you, deal with it. Just, it's no big deal. Well, you don't know. (laughs) Remember when Jesus is preaching the gospel and the man stands up and says, Lord, I mean, there's like 10,000 people plus there, you know, I know you just preached about heaven, hell, eternity, but I got some earthly matters that I got to deal with and I need you to help straighten these out. He says, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. You know what Jesus said? Oh, you know, that's a good point. I'm going to have to, you know, gospel's going to have to go on hold. We got a man over here. They need to settle an estate. Is that what Jesus did? No, he says, man, who made me a divider over you? Who made me an arbitrator over you? Arbitrator over you. He says, and then 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 he turns the man into a parable. He's like, there was a rich man who had goods, you know, stored up for many years. And he goes on and uses the man as a fool of an example. He's like, because the rich man built his towers up, and when he died, uh, guess how much he left behind? He left it all. And so don't, don't get so focused on the material that you lose sight of the spiritual. Give me t- give you two more things, we'll be done. Third, confront others' desires. Uh, confronting others desires their repentance and restoration, not their condemnation. You know, Paul said, and look at verse 3, he says, I speak not this to condemn you, for I said before that you're in our hearts to die and to live with. Uh, You ever gone to someone trying to help them and they think you're trying to attack them? (laughs) I have had that happen. Uh, People, you know, usually whenever I, you know, not usually, but there's times over the years where I've counseled somebody and, and sometimes a wife will think I'm taking the husband's side because I'm a guy. And sometimes the husband thinks I'm taking her side. And I'm like, listen, I'll, I'll hammer both of you guys right here. <laughs> like, I ain't no holes barred. I'll just tell you how it is. You've heard me preach. You came for counseling. You know what you're getting. I'm just going to tell you. Like, right? I mean, this is just what it is. Like, what do you want me to fluff you up? You know what they do? They both think they're so right. Pride just dies really hard. I'm like, well, you're going to have to go through some more suffering. How long you want to suffer? Or you can humble yourself, repent, get right with God, and then you can move on in life with some grace. And it's hard. I, you know, yeah, I'm gracious, you know, kind of working through things. But if you need marital counseling, go to Braden Teach. He'll be more gracious. Yeah. Fill his schedule up. Uh, no, I love, I love helping people. It's, it's one of my joys. Uh, so thankful for reengage. Been such a blessing. But Paul here is saying, I'm not trying to hurt you or attack you. I'm telling this because I love you. And the Greek tense is here is like, I would die with you and continue to live with you. It's, 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 um, you are in my heart. His desire was their restoration. He wasn't trying to condemn them. And Paul had sent them a severe letter. And, and 
You ever confront somebody and you feel like, man, was I too hard on them? Anybody ever felt that way? Like maybe it was a child, maybe it was a friend, and you just... And you even felt like the Lord really pressed it on you, what you said, but then later you're like, you're doubting yourself, like, man, I just... And you're weighing it, your heart's weighing this stuff through. And, and look at verse 8. This is exactly what happened to Paul. He says, for though I made you sorry with the letter, I do not repent. I'm, I'm not going to change my mind about sending that to you, though I did repent. <laughs> right? I mean, Paul's like, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I, I, was, I know you were sorry. It was a heavy letter, and I'm, 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 you know, I didn't repent about sending it to you, but I did repent about sending it to you. And I mean, he was, he was wrangled over this. The rebuke of the letter, letter bothered Paul. Because when you love someone, you don't want to make them miserable. You want them to be restored. You know the difference between having the motive of love and having the motive of hate and having the motive to seek to restore them versus having the motive to condemn them? When you send a rebuke, when you send a letter, you're grieved because you so want them to respond right. Other people who have a motive to condemn them just want to bury the person. They just, well, I hope they really chew on that. Now that's, the Lord would have something to say to you. He would have issue with you. Now listen, sometimes people sin and they have wronged, they have sinned, but don't let their sin become your sin. It's very hard, isn't it? And so it's been said when you parent right, it will hurt you more than your children. I honestly never remember my dad saying, this will hurt me more than it hurts you. I think he thoroughly enjoyed uh, the application, all right? I deserved it, you know. My mom would whip me. I'm like a little to the left, mom. That's not doing a whole lot. And then dad would show up and I was done. Right? But, you know, love disciplines. Hebrews 12:11 says, Now no chastening for the present time seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. It's not joyful. It's not something, something you enjoy doing. You know, parents don't, don't enjoy confronting their children. We're not like, hey, I get to have a sit-down conversation with my children this week. You know, I'm really looking forward to that. Bosses don't look forward to confronting their employees. Spouses don't look forward to confronting their spouse. Uh, friends don't look for, they don't, nobody looks forward to that. Some people are like, well, I like confrontation. Ah, you can say that, but you, it's, it's not something you're looking forward to typically. You may be looking forward to the outcome being good, but but that's, that's not, not something that's uh, attractive. He says it doesn't, it's not something joyous, it's grievous. Nevertheless, he says in Hebrews 12, 11, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them that are exercised thereby. It will produce something very good in their life. Proverbs 13, 24 says, He that spares his rod hates his son, but he that loves him chastens him betimes. Children who are allowed to do whatever they want by their parents have parents that do not love them correctly. Parents who do not discipline their children correctly show they love themselves instead of their children because they'll minister to their own hearts instead of to the needs of their children. Amen. That is a very, very true thought. I'm going to be teaching on the family the entire month in November. We're going to actually pause Matthew, and I'm going to talk about the family for an entire month. We used to do this for years, and uh, we're going to take a month to do that. But example of our Heavenly Father is in Proverbs 3.12. It says, For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, even as a father the son in whom he delights. God's love disciplines. We must do the same. And it's not just physical. I'm not talking about physical discipline. There's all kinds of different ways of discipline, but sin must be confronted. Now look at what Paul says in verse 9. He says, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner that you might have received damage by us in nothing. Paul's desire, again, was their rep restoration. He wanted to see them sorrowful, not so they could just be grieved, but that they could be restored. He says in Galatians 6.1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. You know why we can be tempted? He said, spiritual person restore them and make sure you don't get tempted because sometimes when you go to people to restore them you can get caught up in the frustration and the argumentation and all of that guard yourself don't get caught up in that when you go to confront somebody uh, who does wrong who has sinned do it in a gracious manner not a self-righteous manner not a not in a condemning manner not in a pharisaic manner but in a christ-like manner and then lastly this will be a quick point for is confronting others means you're willing to forgive instead of retaliate. Once you confront, you have to be willing to forgive. 
you have to be willing to forgive. Paul extends loving forgiveness in this chapter. I mean, look at his response in verse 7. He says, and not by his coming only, not when Titus came only. I was just glad to see he's okay, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you. And he told us by your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoice the more. I mean, Paul was just overwhelmed with joy. He extended forgiveness. He didn't hold on to any bitterness or anger toward them. You know, again, going back, I think about the woman caught in adultery. They said this woman was caught in adultery. She deserves to die. The Jews were just focused on judgment. The Jewish leaders were. And the, and the Lord says, if, if, if you don't have any sin, then you can cast the first stone. And the point of the Lord is this. Are you willing to put the same standard of condemnation upon yourself that you're putting on her? And in life, we have to ask that. Am I willing to place the same kind of condemnation on myself and my sin as I do others? I always think about that prayer. I was, I was talking to somebody a few weeks ago, and there was somebody who um, felt they were wronged by another Christian. And um, they didn't respond in a, in a loving manner, but rather in a sinful manner. And, um, and I, I said, you need, to be, you need to realize what you're doing is sinful, just wrong in how you're dealing with this 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 other believer it's not right and and they just wouldn't listen wouldn't listen and I and I said this I said I said do you want God to treat your sin how you're treating them because that's exactly what Matthew's prayer says Matthew's prayer says this father forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us and he uses the word debts, but the other gospel account uses the word sins. It's just wrongs against God. God, I want, and it literally means this, Lord, I want you to treat my sins in the exact same manner as I treat other people's sins. And so I prayed for that individual. And I said, God, I want you to treat this individual's sins the same way they will go from here choosing to treat that other person's sins. And I said, now, friend, it's up to you. It's up to you. So... So we need to do that, don't we? Is that easy? <laughs> Kidding me? Um, but you know, when, when we make our motive vertical, we can make the application of forgiveness horizontal work itself out. Next week, we're going to look at verse 9 through 16 in detail. And I'm going, to, I'm going to look at the difference between biblical repentance and worldly regret. This is a very important message and, and some things that, that will be very helpful. So just wrapping this up tonight, you must confront sin in your own life before you confront others. Secondly, confronting sin must be motivated by our love for others and not by hate. Thirdly, confronting others desires their repentance and restoration. We don't want to condemn them. And when we confront others, it means that we're willing to forgive them and not seek retaliation. Mm -hmm.